This is another episode of Dear Analysts, and in this episode, I am very excited to have Ben Wiley, who is a data journalist at a publication in the UK. He also does really interesting journalism about sports analytics on the side, and so he's going to talk all about his current role, how he got to where he is today, and also about his Substack blog all about sports analytics, which is something many of you might find super interesting. I find it super interesting. Ben, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Al. It's great to have an opportunity to yeah, talk to an audience that's passionate about a lot of the same things that I am. Right. So just getting into your background, how did you become a data journalist? What was your path leading up to where you are today? Sure. So I actually worked for, so I've been a journalist full-time for just over two years. And Prior to that, I actually worked in the financial industry in London here in the UK for um, five years. So I did a chartered accountancy qualification. So what in the US you would probably know as like the CPA. I did the equivalent of that in the UK um, and did my exams and worked um, yeah, in an accountancy firm, professional services firm um, here in the UK for for a bit after, after qualifying. And while I was doing that, um, had, you know, picked up a lot of... Um, I suppose, data skills from my day-to-day -day work, just like messing around with things in Excel was something that was, you know, second nature. By the time I'd mm -hmm. got a bit of experience on my belt there and I was starting to use those skills to, yeah, apply that to one of like the things that I spent a lot of my life thinking and watching and reading about, which is, you know, sport. And obviously being from the UK, I've always followed a lot of, you know, the, the major sports over here, but also like had an interest for quite a long time in the like major US sports as well. And yeah, so started doing a bit of basically, I mean, the, the sort of sports analytics origin story is that I, on my lunch breaks, started pulling some data off the internet into an Excel spreadsheet. And while I was eating my lunch, just like messing around with a few things that I was interested in looking into. And from there, yeah, started writing a blog, like just in my, in my free time while I was, while I was working full time in sort of end of 2019. 2020, that blog, which was sort of specifically focused on rugby, which is one of the sports that I was at that time, you know, watching the most and following along the most. It was, you know, I built up a considerable audience on that and felt like it was something that I was, you know, getting a lot out of and decided to try and pivot to journalism. So I did a master's degree at a, at a university in London full time, sort of from mid 2020 to mid 2021, and then went into a data journalist job at a financial publication straight off the back of that. So I've been, yeah, full-time since mid-2021. I also sort of, I did some freelance rugby data writing, sort of data-driven sports journalism for a, a publication called Rugby Pass. I've like over the end of the master's course that I did and at the start of the full-time job that I had. So that was really good experience and like good to, you know, an opportunity to like put my work in front of a, a different audience. And then since the start of 2022 i have yeah published plot the ball which is my substack newsletter and i've branched out from just covering rugby which is what i sort of mainly wrote about beforehand to you know covering a, a wide range of sports and you know it's it's been a really good platform to experiment with different tools and learn new skills and also to like indulge my interest in 
sort of a wider range of, of sport, which has been really great. So yeah, that's where I am. Very cool. And so you, and so you're saying that the original blog you had in 2019, just about rugby, because of the success of that original blog, was the reason why you decided to pivot from proper finance to data journalism? Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So I, yeah, was doing the the rugby blog I was doing anonymously just because I didn't know whether it was going to be any good, bluntly. And just it was something I was, you know, messing around with as a hobby on the side. And yeah, got so like grew a Twitter, like there was an associated Twitter account that, you know, grew to like a few thousand followers and was publishing sort of analysis on there as well as on a, just a WordPress blog. And yeah, it was really resp the response to that. I know, you know, it wasn't a massive audience by any means, but it was, um, you know, the, like I was getting positive responses from people who, you know, wrote and, you know, followed that particular sport. And I think that that's what sort of gave me the impetus to, yeah, try and pursue this a bit further. But I think really having the, having the professional background that I do have has made the, you know, the analysis work and the, the, the data side of what I'm doing now a lot stronger. And I think I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now without that professional experience and the skills that that's given me. So it's, it, yeah, that, that sort of gave me the push, but it was like, I think the professional experience that I had prior to that really like enabled me to do the work in the first place. Got it. And what was the name of that original rugby blog you started? So that was, that was called the chase rugby. Okay. Called the chase. Uh, and it, I'm guessing it's not live anymore. So there, it is still, it's still, oh, okay. and I also, so I off the back of that also had a Substack linked to that, which sort of was a more focused, like more focused in terms of the topic that I was covering. And yeah, that's all still live. And I think through my various sort of like, like certainly from LinkedIn, I think that's all accessible and the links are all there, but yeah, that's something I'm happy to share. Okay, Maybe cool. The, not some of the earlier stuff, cause that's always sort of interesting to go back and look at. <laughs> yeah. You're kind of like, what was I thinking back then kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. Well, uh, great. So, I mean, let's talk about plot the ball. I mean, there's so many great blog posts that you have on the Substack, and we're going to talk about a couple. One that caught my attention is the one about MBA becoming more global. I'm curious if you can give our listeners kind of some context around why you decided to focus on this spot, this specific topic around the MBA, what the, what the, what your findings were in the analysis. I'm of course going to link to the blog posts in the show notes, but just want to hear your story from why you decided to tell this story in the first place. Sure. So I had written a few months prior. So this, this blog post that we're talking about was published in August ahead of the FIBA World Cup, uh, which, you know, is, is always an interesting tournament because the US, despite sort of providing the world with most of its basketball talent, doesn't always send top teams. So that was, yeah. that was something that got me thinking about the sort of global reach of the sports, like in the men's game. And I'd also written about Victor Wembanyama, who went first overall in the NBA draft back in June. And I think with, with that in particular, as well as obviously Nikola Jokic and the Nuggets winning the, winning the title just prior to Wembanyama being drafted. And like also, you know, at a, um, like a really interesting sort of headline statistic is that no US player has won the MV MVP, I think in like six years now because i think Giannis Antetokounmpo won it twice Jokic right. won it twice and then Joel Embiid has won the, the previous season so there were a lot of things you know like 
flagged to me that looking more deeply into, yeah, I guess the global reach of the NBA, like there were a lot of reasons that I thought that might be an interesting topic to go into. And I wanted to do it in a, a slightly more broad based way than just looking at, you know, the, the, the number of MVPs, because obviously you're, that's a very small, you, that's a very like narrow look at the league every year. And you can look at it for like the other end of the spectrum, which is like looking at the number of international players across the, across the league as a whole. But that again, that's not quite measuring like impact and contribution as, as well as you could do. So I decided to look specifically at the players who've been picked in each season's all NBA teams since I think the end of the 1980s when they started selecting three all NBA teams, so that's 15 players in total and looking at the number of players and like the number of players in those 15 spots who were from the US, like I have split it and looked at North America and the Caribbean, which obviously accounts for a really large chunk of those top 15 players in the, in the early seasons in that stretch and compare you know, the proportion of players provided by, you know, other parts of the world. And you can sort of see a really clear trend. It's really interesting. Actually, I wasn't, you know, and it's one of those questions that I was looking into without sort of really knowing what, um, what would turn up. But when you, when you visualize it, it's very clear that, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, and certainly over the last five years, the, the top players in the NBA are much more, di like they're much more diverse than they had been, you know. 20, 30 years ago. So like to put some numbers on that over the, la over the last five seasons, so not including this season, but as far as 2022, 23 of the 55 sort of available all NBA slots, 25 were filled by players from outside North America. And that was like by far the most during any five year span in that period. Like if you looked at the first, I think five years, so there's the sort of late eighties to early nineties, you were looking at around one player from outside North America out of 15 in each year. So it was, a, you know, it was a really, I guess it's always validating when you think that a question might turn up an interesting answer and it does. And it was just a really good data exercise as well, because there's not a great sort of tabular repository of like these all NBA selections that I could find on the internet. So I had to do a bit of scraping from the NBA website. They basically have a list in text format so like one name after the other um, and I had to sort of devise a way of extracting that and turning it into into something tabular that I could work with to produce the visualization so yeah it was, a, it was a really it was a really fun bit of data work as well as I think showing an interesting trend that you know people were probably aware was you know broadly the case but like it was you know it, it's a I think it's a really good way because of the sort of focus on the league's top players it's a really good way of, of communicating that yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll paste a the main visualization from the blog post in the show notes as well. I'm curious how you settled on. I don't even know what this type of visual visualization is called, but it's like a series of blocks with the years along the y-axis, and then you color the blocks depending on what region the players came from that were selected to the All NBA team. I'm curious how you settled on that this specific visualization to tell this story. Yeah, so it's interesting. Like, I think, like, I mean, I wouldn't be. Like, I'm not sure what I would call the chart type either. To be honest, I think it's probably, okay. you like it's similar to what you see sometimes called a waffle chart because it's got that sort of like the, um, yeah, I guess like little squares arranged in that sort of waffle pattern. But yeah, I I decided on this because I think 
you know, like obviously showing a for this sort of compositional data where you're, you know, showing for like a defined, you know, you, you've selected a group over time and you want to show the change in like the the subgroups that make up that data. Like a stack bar chart is something that's quite commonly seen. And I think, you know, like I, I considered going down that route, but I think especially when, you know, like I, I think, I think there's a risk sometimes that you can like abstract a data visualization too far away from the underlying data in a way that like makes it harder to grasp or harder for like the reader to understand. And I think when you're dealing with, you know, in, in each season here, we're dealing with like 15 players and, you know, to, to abstract that away to a bar chart where you're showing like a proportion, you know, out of a hundred, if you're showing a percentage, like it, it makes it slightly less tangible. Whereas if you, I think if you present sort of each, yeah, so in the, in the, in the visualization, each season has one row of 15, um, of 15 squares. And I think that communicates much better exactly what the, what the underlying data represents, I suppose. And I think, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to get your head around. Okay. There are, you know, 15 dots representing the 2022, 23 season and 10 of them, you know, are players from North America, four of them are players from Europe and one is a player from Africa rather than thinking, okay, well, we have this bar chart that's got, you know, two thirds, two thirds noted in a color representing North America and slightly less than a third, you know, representing Europe. And like, it, it's, I guess it, it prevents the reader from having to do that, you know, mental maths of like, okay, well, we've got 15 players in each year. How do we, you know, like how do, how do I sort of translate this back into like real terms? I like, you know, and I think, I think there's often balance in like visualization work and like a lot of the, you know, leading practitioners in data visualization will often talk about that balance between presenting something in a chart format that's familiar enough to be understandable while also not, you know, ruling out, um, you know, tr like trying something a bit different or trying something new to like grab people's attention. And I think this, this was one that I was really pleased with as like a slightly left field. Yeah. Format. Um, but I think it, I think it communicates the, the data well for, for those reasons that I, that I said. Yeah. Yeah. I think because you have 15 di distinct discrete values for each season, it almost looks like, like a roster for yeah, each exactly. year. Um, I guess to make it even more, I guess less abstract in a way as you could have even like put like, you know, the person's face on each square or something if you want yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, you would see like the, oh, this is Luca was drafted this year and Wemby this year or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, and you know, I suppose to t like to take that example on a bit, like I, so I used, I sort of recycled the same chart type for some, there's, there's sort of similar, but not, not quite the same, but similar data that's available for like the top players in. Uh, men's European football, for instance, and I sort of reproduced a similar chart to this, but with 11 dots for the like 11 players in a team of the year, sort of equivalent to the all NBA teams instead of 15. So again, it's like, it is that idea of making it more, making it more tangible. Very cool. Well, that, that's great. I definitely will include this link in the, in the show notes and moving on to another post more in your home field, I guess you could say something I don't know that much about, which is rugby. And you had a post called Men's, in Men's International Rugby Union Changed Gradually, Then Suddenly, kind of like a key headline takeaway. Can you tell us about what this post is supposed to capture? It seems like it's more of like a longitudinal study in a way, but I wanted to hear your story about 
what what story you're trying to tell and what the analysis was. Sure. So yeah, as I said at the top, rugby was sort of, I guess, the sport that I spent a lot of time riding about first and foremost. And um, yeah, I I stopped sort of following it as close, like you're still paying attention to the sport, but stopped sort of watching it quite as intensively as I had been a couple of years ago. And this piece was really a way for me more than anything else to like, it's again, this one started off as like a, just a sort of data exploration exercise that I was interested in looking at this underlying trend rather than sort of thinking that I was going to write an article on this topic and going looking for the, for the data. But I suppose in rugby, the men's international game has traditionally been dominated by a small number of teams. So between them, I mean, if any, if anyone has been following the men's world cup that finished just last week, the final was between New Zealand and South Africa. And those two teams between them have won almost every single men's world cup in yeah, the 35, 36 years that it's, that tournament has been going. And I think I, yeah, having followed the sport closely for a while and sort of come back to a more like sort of casual fan relationship with it. I wanted to zoom out a bit and look at sort of what, how, how the sport was trending, how results between those like traditionally elite teams and other teams in the world were trending over time because there have been, you know, despite that recent final being between two of the traditionally dominant teams, like in the last few years, it's been understood that there are some teams like Ireland and France and some of the other European teams that have um, started to to do very well against the yeah the traditionally strong teams and yeah so this this piece looked at effectively grouping like grouping countries into or grouping some of the countries that contested international rugby into two separate subgroups so the tri nations which are the traditionally strong southern hemisphere countries so Australia New Zealand and South Africa who've won nine world cups between them and what's what is sometimes called the home nation so england scotland wales and ireland who compete together as the british and irish lions every four years they go on tour and play against either australia new zealand or south africa and what i guess what i was interested in was what like ha- has the dominance of those traditional southern hemisphere powers really declined and by looking at the results between those two groups of countries over the 30 odd years that rugby has been a professional sport. So rugby only turned professional in the late, like the mid 1990s. So if you plot the a sort of rolling average of the results in matches between those two groups of teams, you can see that in the early, in the early stages of professionalism, the gap was really massive. The like Australia, New Zealand and South Africa on average were winning games against England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland by score lines of about 35 points to 15, which is like really, you know, a, a pretty stark advantage. And over time, that that has fallen away really quite precipitously in recent years. And in the last, so when I when I ran this analysis over the summers, so this is prior to the to the World Cup, over the, you know, the, over the last 60 fixtures between those two teams, it was basically a dead heat. There's the the average scoreline was about 23 points to 23, and I think that like. That is, you know, again, it's it's one of those, it's one of those data exercises where you go away and, um, you know, if you're interested by a question, going away and 
finding an answer that sort of corresponds to your initial hypothesis for what it might show is always quite satisfying. I think there's there's like there's real value to to zooming out and depicting the you know the the overall trend in a sport like this, which is you know composed of like a small number of countries who compete compared to something like you know football or soccer on like the on the global stage like the pool of countries is much smaller and allows you to do this sort of analysis but i think you know being able to visualize that so starkly and like when it's such a clear change i think um was it was a really effective uh chart and i think like people were like this is one of the more successful posts that i've done on plot the ball and even you know when i when i you know, shared the chart on social media. It was one that got a lot more traction than ones that I usually usually share. But I think it's like I find it interesting to think about sports at this sort of like bird's eye view because you know people talk about you know the impact that like selection decisions make in games or you know the impact of coaching and tactics. But there are you know really long-standing underlying trends that you know impact all of the you know so like similar to the to the the way that and more international players are playing in the NBA in rugby the european countries have traditionally been like much more um, economically powerful than the countries in the southern hemisphere like they they can run higher wage bills and attract players with higher salaries from those traditional countries and that sort of attrition of the player base i think is one thing that quite could possibly be explaining this this gradual decline it's like it's something that i'd like to investigate a bit more in the future but i think you know, you can often, like, it's easy to get to get caught up in, like, you know, the most, you know, the, the explanations for results and outcomes that are, you know, closest to hand, whether it's, you know, one player being available or not being available or a coach choosing to do one thing or not the other, when I think, like, we're not always as good at understanding the way that things trend over the long term. And I think I like a visualization like this, which, yeah, shows, you know, data over a long period of time is really a good way of bringing that home to people. And I said, I mean, it's, it's quite amusing because I sort of said in the article, this was at the start of July, it was published, like, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very different international rugby is in a very different place to the one it was in even sort of 10 years ago. And then obviously it ended up with a World Cup final between two of the traditional traditional teams who've done really well in the competitions that would like i mean i think they like those of you who have paid attention to the rugby world cup will know that i mean south africa in particular got to the they won three knockout games to win the tournament by a combined points margin of three points across three games so it was really yeah not necessarily indicative of, of a team that was like clearly the best team on paper and New Zealand had a very close win over Ireland who are one of the like who have probably been the best team in the world in in recent years so yeah it's, it's an interesting you know look at as well how knockout like knockout tournaments aren't you know necessarily the best way to work out who the who the best team is and I suppose you know in like the sort of like the regular season versus playoffs structure in American sports is obviously like that makes it very stark and I know like in baseball for instance like there's been quite a lot of like i think it was this world series was the two teams in this world series had like the lowest combined win total of any two world series teams in yeah like a, a really long time so that you know i think that sort of this like this sort of analysis allows you to sort of split 
um, spit a question like, or like separate a question like who's the best team or which teams are performing well from, you know, the, the sort of easy answer of like, okay, well, who's winning the, the competitions that we pay the most attention to? For sure. Yeah. I think the, you mentioned like the, you know, salaries for the European countries potentially increasing and drawing more players. I think it might be interesting follow-up analysis, like seeing how this trend also tracks with the, you know, say average salaries for the tri-nations versus the home nations. One, one thing I wanted to point out that uh, Google included the visualization course in the show notes is one, sp- one small detail that I'm sure was intentional was in the title and in the subtitle, I would say, of the, of the visualization, you kept the home nations font color the same with the line chart on the graph, on the chart. And same thing with tri-nations. I think that just that one little detail makes it so much easier to comprehend the chart. And you kind of made the rest of the the grid lines and everything else kind of like more of a muted gray color. And just keeping those colors consistent between the, the lines and the words in the title and subtitle just make it such a more easy to understand visualization for just like the average reader. Yeah, I think like that's, I mean, that's definitely my intention in this one. I think like right. in, every, in every chart that, like, I think with, with every chart that you're putting together, you know, no matter whether it's in like a journalistic context or like a, you know, whether it's like a business dashboard or whatever you're doing, I think like being conscious of the, like the co- like cognitive load is a term that's like often used by, again, like the sort of people who know a lot more about data visualization and, you know, how it's understood by readers than, than me. But that, you know, that's a term that um, gets thrown around quite a lot. And I think the more you can do to like ease the path to like understanding the core message of a chart, the better. And yeah, in this, in this case, um, the, the, like, you know, I suppose you would, you would call it a, while there is no sort of specific area on the chart that is a color key, you know, there's not, there's not anywhere on the chart where I say this line corresponds to this and this line corresponds to this. It's sort of implicit in all of the surrounding text so the the line levels i have placed next to the next to the line and like the appropriate line level placed next to the line in each case and put it in the same color as the line the sort of data label marking the final value of the line again in the same color um and next to next to the line so you don't have to sort of flip between you know one one place on the graphic and another and again yeah just the using you know, font, like different font colors in titles and subtitles, I think is something that is also very effective in that way. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I think to, to wrap up a little bit, one thing we haven't chatted about at all is kind of, are your kind of process and techniques and tools for cleaning data, analyzing data, building visualizations, I guess to start off, like what, I mean, is there a, do you have a standard tool for creating these visualizations or is a lot of this is very custom? Sure. So yeah, so all of the, all of the work for plot the ball is done in R. So, I mean, really the, the newsletter started for me as a way of forcing myself to learn that tool better, both from a sort of data analysis and, you know, some like learning to, um, improve my scraping and analysis within that specific programming language, but then also producing visualizations within it. So I, I mean, I, as I said, sort of earlier, have spent a lot of my life in Microsoft Excel and sort of other spreadsheet based 
tools. I'm like feel at this point pretty comfortable with that. But like it's been really, really rewarding, I suppose, to learn R in particular as like like it. it I feel given me so much more scope to to do interesting, you know, data analysis work and also the visualization work, you know, compared to what I would have been able to do just using Excel and, you know, off like I think in in my old in my like my former sports blogging days, I used you know like more off the shelf data visualization tools like Tableau and Data Wrapper and things like that, which are like like really great, really great tools. You know, server like serve a clear purpose and are incredibly useful but like I, I wanted to you know challenge myself to you know improve my skills in this area and like it's been I think have, like having having a specific goal in mind so in this case like I just started out by thinking okay well like what are some interesting questions about sports that I follow that I would like to try and answer and going away and and try to answer them it was it was a really great way to to approach learning a new tool and you know like in I was quite sort of strict in the first sort of i guess in the first year or so of doing the newsletter i was quite strict in saying okay well if it's not something i can do like i'm only gonna use r to try and tackle these problems i'm not gonna you know resort to whether it's google sheets or excel or anything else to like just to, to force myself to find a solution within that one tool and that i think that constraint really helped me develop my skills but I've, like not i'm not at the point where I'm like a bit more pragmatic about it where there's something interesting that I want to write about that is just easier to work with, you know, Google Sheets to grab. Like if it's not a sort of detailed script that requires, you know, lots of lots of R code, I'm happy to just do something in Google Sheets and then import it into R and use ggplot2 to do the, the visualization work in the back end. But yeah, like it's it's all done. It's all done in R. And then I do actually so like some of the annotations and things I add in just preview for Mac because that's just like a very easy sort of image editor that you can add those things in. But yeah, that's yeah. that's the tool that I'm using. Cool. And then for, I mean, you mentioned cleaning data. I'm assuming that that can be done in R or Excel. But for importing the data, you're talking about scraping and that kind of, I think, you know, you're kind of moving a little bit into the realm of like what, you know, engineer might be doing for scraping a website. What has that been like in terms of learning the process for, you know, taking data from Wikipedia or from, you know, the MBA stats, I'm guessing you're not just copy and pasting. So how did you learn how to like scrape data? I guess you could say to eventually yeah, so put I mean, it into a usable format. Sure. So, I mean, as I said, I, I did a, I did a master's course before sort of becoming a full-time journalist and we, Got it. You know, we on, on that, we touched on, touched on some of those like script, basic scraping tasks. But it's only, it's only really been through this project that I'm proud to be fair through some of the work that I do in my day job as well, that I've really sort of progressed my scraping skills. I would say, I think like the, the main thing for me has been, I guess, understanding the like underlying structure of web pages. It's like, you know, that's just like the key thing that you have to grasp in order to, in order to be able to get the information out of a web page that you want and that like just understanding that and like part of that was like i've not sort of done any you know actual web development or anything myself but like i've, I've messed around with you know building building some very, very basic web pages to try and just like understand all of that architecture and how it fits together a bit better so i think that like that's been that's been good to 
you know, allow me to understand what exactly I'm looking for. I think, you know, we're like with all of these things, like I, you know, like, like, I, I think it's probably worth saying like in all of this, like I'm very, I think, I think with all of these sort of self-driven, like type of types of data project, like I'm just quite aware of like, you know, understanding my own limitations and not trying to like do more than I you know, like I, I try not, I try not to sort of just copy and paste code that I don't understand because someone on, you know, Stack Overflow says that this is how you solve a particular problem. Like, I think like I've tried to force myself to, you know, understand the, the underlying concepts that I'm, that I'm working with. And I, like, I'm not, I'm very much not, you know, doing really advanced, like even on the scraping side, it's not hugely advanced stuff. And yeah, I guess like it, there's always, you know, I think most people who who come into data journalism not from a you know a programming or a you know a really techie background will say that there's a lot of starting with a problem writing some code that doesn't work googling to try and work out why that doesn't work and sort of the, the sort of constant trial and error is something that you know I think a lot of people who have come from similar backgrounds to me are are well used to but like it like it really is just that process of okay well you know I might not, you know, and even, even now, like, it's like, there is always that it's always a case of, you know, working through your mistakes, but like, I like the, just the, the process of like setting myself these challenges basically to try and get better over time. Like the length of time that it takes me to do something now compared to, you know, a couple of years ago when I started, it's really incomparable, but yeah, it's like, in, like in terms of this sort of specific result, just like, like the RVEST package in R is what I'm using to, to actually dig out the um dig out the stuff from web pages and it's probably worth saying as well that all i like for all of the newsletters that i publish i put the accompanying code on github too so like if that's something that you're interested in going i'm looking at you know all there on the internet and you know like i think that as well forces you to you know write half decent code and you know debug as you go and not just sort of leave random bits and in that. And yeah, if you do, if anyone spots any mistakes, please tell me, because that's worse, especially for a, <laughs> like, yeah, for a, like a project that is literally just you working on yourself. It's always what keeps you up at night, but yeah, it's all, it's all there if anyone wants to look. Yeah. Great. Well, this, I mean, some of the things you touched on kind of lead into my last question to wrap things up for those who, if you, if you have any advice for those who are interested in pursuing a career in data journalism data storytelling, sports or otherwise, curious if you have any final bits of advice for those folks. Yeah, I think, you know, like for me, I have always, in terms of the topics that I've chosen to write about, I've always followed the things that I'm really passionate about. And, you know, like it doesn't, working on a project like this doesn't really feel like additional work to me. Like it's something I do in my free time because I enjoy doing it as well as the sort of, you know, um, chance that it gives me to like stretch my professional skills. So I think like finding something that, you know, like, like everyone has something that they are really passionate about and like identifying that and then turning that into something concrete. Like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be even, you know, if you, there are a lot of people who prefer to like do the data work and visualization work and write a bit less. Like I like to write as well as doing the data work so like a newsletter with some charts is a good format for me but sort of work out what like what specific skills you want to develop and what you're passionate about and just 
like, you know, churn out as much work in public as you possibly can. Cause like that, I think like that is really the thing that I think has stood me in good stead, you know, since I was just writing about rugby anonymously on the internet, you know, eight years ago. Like, I think you just like it, like it's such like anything, it's like, it's such an iterative process and you do just improve by putting stuff out there and, you know, reading what other people do and looking at their work and, um, reflecting on, you know, the work that you put out last week and, you know, trying to do a bit better piece by piece by piece. And like, I, like, I feel like I've got to like a really good, um, you know, like I, I, I understand what I'm good at when it comes to this sort of sports analytics stuff, because I've been doing it for, you know, eight years and like, I, you know, dread to think how many words I've published on the internet over that period but like i think just just doing the work and that's what allows you to learn and that's how you how you get better that's a great way to end the end this episode well ben thank you so much for your time and for walking us through plot the ball and uh, yeah we'll definitely include all the links in the show notes and uh, yeah looking forward to reading more posts from you in the future yeah, thanks i really appreciate it mm-hmm.